Livermore podcast. We hope you'll enjoy this message by Pastor Joshua Harris. Hey everybody, Pastor Josh here again. Uh, if you've been looking for Pastor Joey, uh, he's still s- suffering with the laryngitis that's been affecting him for the last couple months. Uh, and so based on doctor recommendation, we're going to give him some extra time off on his voice. Uh, but look for him coming up in the next few months. Uh, we're definitely going to get him back, uh, God willing and health willing. And so please be in prayer with us for Pastor Joey uh, as we continue at this time. I'll continue our sermon series on Set Apart. Uh, if you're part of our Every Nation family around the world, you know different people all over the globe are sharing on this idea of a biblical view of holiness. And I would really encourage you to listen to different frameworks and perspectives because I think God shows the fullness of his goodness, of his holiness through his church from different perspectives. So there's a lot of good people sharing on this during this season. I would highly recommend you check those out online. Just uh, Google uh, Every Nation or on YouTube, look up Every Nation. There's a lot of different sources there. Uh, now, with that being said, we're going to jump into this part on holiness. And I mentioned this before, but when we look at that word kadosh or holy uh, in the Old Testament, uh, some of your Bible helps will tell you something along the lines of this, that that holiness means that God is separate from human infirmity, impurity, and sin. Now, if you see this, uh, we know we still suffer from infirmities. We, we do have as much as we want to walk holy before the Lord. We have moments of impurity and sin. And so the question uh, becomes, how can God make me holy? And so as we talked about this last week, we focused on Hebrews where it says this in Hebrews 10, for by one offering, by Jesus's offering on the cross, and we compared it to the Old Testament offerings and animal sacrifices, and we talked about how his offering one time perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the idea is positionally, Jesus has made me holy before God and before people, uh, free from guilt, free from shame, based on his work on the cross. However, he is working out that holiness that he's, he's creating in me an ability to live out experientially that holiness he's given us positionally. And that's the question we're really going to dive into at a deeper level today. How can I live out the holiness that God has provided for us through Jesus? Uh, strangely, this is taking us to two different mountains. Uh, the first mountain we're going to go to is called Mount Sinai. It's in modern day Egypt. Uh, and Mount Sinai biblically will reference us back to the major event or one of the major events that took place there is the giving of the Ten Commandments. And so if you remember this story, God comes down in a cloud and Moses goes up to meet him. Uh, but when the author of Hebrews is referencing back to this story, he notices it from a very interesting perspective, and it's a very similar perspective to the one Paul uses in the book of Galatians chapter 4. Uh, but here he talks about this in, he- in the book of Hebrews. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In other words, we're not going back to a mountain like Mount Sinai where physically you could, uh, by your own effort or work, move up towards God. And why is that? Because if you go that way by your flesh, by your own effort, by your own uh, will or by the law, there is burning with fire, darkness, gloom, and storm. You might go, wait a minute, God's presence? You guys, don't you Christians talk about God as love and God as gracious and God's all these things? Yes, he is. And so when he came down on Mount Sinai, in his grace, he actually uh, had a cloud of darkness cover the entire mountain because he is so pure that any impurity that saw him or touched him would be killed. 
And so he actually, in his mercy, separated us from himself because he's separate from our impurities, our infirmities, and our sin. Uh, so this isn't necessarily good news for them. In fact, their response to God coming was kind of they were overwhelmed by it. It was a trumpet blast or such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged. Imagine this. Uh, and this is the story. We see it in Exodus chapter 19. The people were begging that God wouldn't speak to them anymore. And I don't know if you've ever been in a difficult season in your life and you're like, man, if God would just speak to me or if God would just show himself to me or I'm struggling with this belief in this Jesus thing and if Jesus would just show up and say something, I would believe. They're actually saying the opposite. They're saying, stop talking. Why? It's scary. It's, it's thunderous. But more importantly, what he's saying was terrifying to them. Here's what he was saying. They could not bear what he commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. And you're like, well, wait, wait, what did the animal do? God's presence was so holy that no flesh could exist in that presence without dying. So he was commanding them to remove themselves, their animals, everything away. And it goes on to say this, the sight was so terrifying that even Moses, Moses who, who was in the presence of God, called by God, had heard God's voice before, had experienced God, had seen the miracles of God in his life, says, I'm trembling with fear. This is a picture of us coming to God's holiness from a perspective of our own effort, ability, or trying to obey rules and regulations rather than finding holiness from another source. Uh, there's a guy named John Lennox. He's a famous uh, uh, apologist and theologian from Oxford, and he talks about morality if it's simply horizontal between us and people. Uh, it's hard to find objective truth. What's moral and what's not? What's good and what's evil? It's up to you. It's kind of you're deciding for yourself. There's no objective morality. He says the Bible teaches a vertical morality. God is informing us what morality is. And when we are informed by God, we get overwhelmed. We tremble with fear because we realize we cannot live up to the holiness that God expects. And why is that? Because sin's entered, so we're already born impure. At our best efforts, we fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans and other places. Good news, we're not coming to Mount Sinai. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. There's a different mountain. You have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a real place in Israel and often is used to uh, kind of correspond or correlate to the city of Jerusalem itself. Sometimes it's referred to as the heavenly Jerusalem. In fact, it will be here in just a second. Uh, Paul also, again, in Galatians 4, refers to this as the heavenly Jerusalem. The idea of Mount Zion was this hill, but it's not saying go back to Jerusalem and stand on Mount Zion Hill. He's saying, you have come to Mount Zion, and I love this, it clarifies it for us. Because sometimes I wonder, wait, are you using that symbolically, God? Or are you talking about, you know, specifically, tangibly, objectively? Here he says, no, I'm talking about the heavenly Jerusalem. This idea that we haven't come to a place of judgment where law is given to us and fear is born in us. Actually, we've come to a place that's the city of a living God. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. Now, watch how he describes this mountain, this spiritual mountain that we come to, this uh, spiritual place that we encounter God in, in comparison to Mount Sinai and the, and the spiritual realities we encountered there. It says this, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly rather than in fearful assembly. God, don't talk to us. It's scary. We're scared that we can't live up to your expectations. We know we're broken. No, it's people worshiping, singing to the church of the firstborn, an assembly of people who are submitted to Jesus and therefore have their names written in heaven. So rather than being fearful of death, they have a, a courageous expectation of eternal life, their names written in heaven. When we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive my sin, 
Make me new. Be the Lord of my life. We're joining this assembly. We are coming to that heavenly Jerusalem. We're enjoying Mount Zion, a place of God's protection and favor and peace. You have come to God. Ultimately, you're coming to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So he has made us, how, how come we're righteous? He has made us perfect. It's hard for me to say that sometimes. I remember I've often done this in classes when you have a group of people studying this stuff and I go, how many of you are as righteous as God? Very rarely does anyone raise their hand. Every now and then someone who's heard me before will, will kind of timidly raise your hand. And it does feel funny to go, I'm as righteous as God. But the book of, of Second uh, Corinthians actually tells us that he made Jesus sin so we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Who? You and me. And you go, man, I'm not as righteous as, as Jesus. I'm not as righteous as God. I don't feel that way either. But in the sacrifice of Jesus, even broken, sinful people like me, when God looks at us, he sees the very righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of God. Why? Because we've been, uh, Jesus has been the mediator, the one who's given us this new covenant, this new commitment. He's transferred his righteousness to us as he paid for our sins through his death. He's transferred his blessing to us as he was taking our curses, as cursed as everyone who's hung on a tree. It says in Galatians, he took those curses for us. And now the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel's blood was calling out from the ground, justice, justice, sin produces death. It's produced death in me. Now justice must come to those who have sinned against me. Jesus's blood is calling out mercy, mercy, forgiveness is available through my sacrifice. As I was preparing for this, I had a unique experience. I was actually crying reading an encyclopedia. Uh, it's an online encyclopedia called Britannica. Uh, it's one of the first encyclopedias I knew of when I was a kid. Encyclopedia Britannica was like a big thing. It was pre-internet, the source of all information, right, besides the Bible. Uh, and this is how it describes Mount Zion. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful picture of what Mount Zion means to the believer. Okay, this is what it says. Mount Zion is the place where Yahweh, the God of Israel, dwells. So the first thing we see here is God's desire to dwell with us. So when he says we've come to Mount Zion, he's actually saying we've come to his presence. We've come to enjoy a place where we can actually, uh, Jesus describes us as abiding in the vine, staying connected to him like a vine connected, uh, so like branches uh, connected to a vine. We stay in line with and connected to and in fellowship with God. It's the place where he is king. In other words, his headship, his rulership, his authority, his sovereignty, we're under the protection of his kingship and his order and leadership. He installed his King David there. It is thus the seat of the action of Yahweh in history. So when we say we come to Mount Zion, we're saying we're in the place where God is there, God is king, and God is active in our lives to help us. Therefore, he summarizes it this way, the author of Hebrews. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, this is God's kingdom, this is his mountain. It's a spiritual mountain. You can't fight over it. You can't claim it. You can't have the UN give it to a different person. This is God's kingdom. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Then he goes back to, for our God is a consuming fire. See, God has always been a fire. Now there's two different ways fire works. Fire can work to burn something out and burn something up, or fire can work to refine something, to melt away the impurities, to make it what it should always be. If we recognize we're not coming to Mount Sinai and being killed and being destroyed and being separated from God, we are coming to Mount Zion and in his presence as King and Lord 
he allows that same consuming fire to touch us that we might be refined into the pure gold he desires us to be for his kingdom and his purposes, being the real us we were always meant to be. All right, so what should I do? That's a lot of big words and a lot of vision, and maybe that's kind of spiritual sounding, but what does it look like as it's played out in our life? Well, I kind of started at the end, and now let's move to the beginning. So everything I said so far is towards the end of Hebrews chapter 12. If we jump back to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, we see the author laying out a directive for how we might live our life towards that Mount Zion, towards living in that presence, power, and purpose of God. It says this, Therefore, uh, he's talking about what? A reference to what was there before. What was there before? Hebrews chapter 11, which is called sometimes the hall of faith. We have this image of people who lived out their life by faith in obedience to God. Since we are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Uh, I had the privilege of having dinner with a couple of friends who were in a what we call creative access nation uh, the other day. When you're meeting people who have laid down their life completely, whether they go to jail, whether they're killed, whatever happens to them may be, they're going to follow Jesus. It inspires you. Okay, what's holding me back? Is it a little bitterness? Is it a little offense? The guy at the church didn't shake my hand. My friend didn't say something nice to me. The person was rude. Uh, I don't like the way the guy preached. It was too cold or too hot. The music was too long or too loud or too short or, or too not loud. I don't know, whatever. I throw off all that. It's not worth it. And how do I throw off these sins? What sins is it talking about? Might be talking about unbelief based on the context. Might be just talking about all of us have some things inside us that tend to hold us back. Maybe for some it's timidity. For others, it's a little bit of arrogance. Maybe it depends what it is. But either way, God's encouraging us to throw it off. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer, the starter, the, the originator, and the perfecter, the one who will make sure it gets completed of our faith. Jesus is the one carrying us through. So I look to Jesus and how his life was, and I look to Jesus going, he's carrying me through this life. For the joy set before him, he endured a cross, scorning the shame. In other words, uh, you know, sometimes we stay away from things that might embarrass or humiliate us. Jesus walked right into the shame like, I don't care about this shame. I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm doing has value for eternity. Then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he wins. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So the first thing I need to respond to uh, based on what God's done for us, that he's made us holy through the sacrifice of Jesus, that he's called us to his dwelling place, his city, this thing called Mount Zion, uh, what should I do? I should look to Jesus, consider his life so I don't grow weary and lose heart. Because often it's the, it's the trials, it's the disappointments, it's the frustrations of life. It's when things didn't work out the way I expected that make me grow weary and lose heart. He says, don't do it. Look to Jesus. Keep going. He goes on to encourage it this way. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. How do you know God's your father? He's disciplining you. That's what it says. You're not legitimate unless you undergo discipline. Wow, what a statement. Now, if you hear that, you might go, discipline sounds bad. Depending on how you were disciplined as a child, if you weren't disciplined at all, often people... Uh, think it's really loving to your children to have no boundaries for them or no direction for them. Actually, this says you will birth in them a feeling of illegitimacy. If you don't stand as a parent, I'm talking about the parents only here, okay? The father and the mother, if they stand there and go, look, I love you enough to give direction to your life. 
This isn't talking necessarily about physical punishment or a particular kind of punishment. It's talking about directing your children the way they should go. You don't leave them alone to figure out life for themselves. But if you're willing to, because the word there, discipline, kind of means it comes from the root word of the word child. It's, it's childing them up towards adulthood, helping them become mature. That's the role of parenting. And this is saying God, as a good father, will help you grow up. How does he help you grow up? Often by enduring hardship, by doing the things you don't want to do. How do your muscles get strong? Enduring weights. How does your heart get strong? By enduring challenge in relationships and learning to grow up and mature in those relationships, to love others, to be selfless. No one taught me how to yell mine and be selfish and try to get stuff for myself. People had to teach me and train me how to be someone who shares and someone who is more generous and understands social cues and all these other things. They had to be, I had to be helped into that. I didn't have to be helped into being selfish. And this is saying the same thing. God loves you enough that he's going to challenge you with discipline through hardship. If you'll endure it, if you'll fix your eyes on Jesus and go through it, good things are going to happen to you. What's going to happen to you? God disciplines us for our good. Why? In order that we may share in his holiness. So how do I live out holiness? Fix my eyes on Jesus, endure whatever God wants me to go through, understanding he's doing it for my good that I might share in his holiness. So what? So now where? Where do I go? This is where we go playing it out from God's working on me so that I can walk with people. Therefore, strengthen the feeble arms, my feeble arms and weak knees. Uh, make level paths for my feet. What is that saying? Uh, get in practice of doing the right things. Get in practice of going the right way. Learn to heed God's warnings, endure God's discipline so you could be strengthened, so you can walk those paths. Uh, we went hiking in Bali when we were in Bali not too long ago. And what I realized about halfway up was I, my, my knees are kind of weak and my arms are kind of feeble. Uh, I was carrying a backpack and I started about halfway up realizing I'm not, I'm not this, this, as strong as I once was. Uh, and so what I had to learn is, okay, physically you can grow weary. Uh, physically you can grow weak. Spiritually that can happen. So strengthen your feeble arms. How? The workout of God's word, the workout of God's presence, the workout of obedience to what God's called us to do. Make level paths so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So now he's starting to shift us from focus just on ourselves to the reason you want to live right, the reason you want to follow Jesus clearly and correctly is because there's others coming along with you who have been hurt, who have been wounded, who have been abused. And if you misrepresent God on that journey, they're going to be uh, disabled rather than healed. He's saying we want to help them, not disable them. Uh, if you can imagine years ago, you know, you had a lot, a big move to put ramps in a lot of places. So I love Singapore. Uh, if you're in a, in a handicapped situation or, or you need to use a wheelchair or something like that, almost everywhere has somewhere where you can get there through a ramp or through a lift. Uh, we're very conscious of helping those who maybe through no fault of their own, maybe through an accident or something or in a position of being disabled. We need to help them so that they might eventually be healed. Uh, years ago, there were places where you just couldn't get into it. If you were disabled, someone would have to carry you or someone. So we want to make it as easy as possible to enter into the presence of God. We want to be as humble as possible to make it easy for those who have been wounded to come in and enjoy the presence of God. I was listening to a podcast uh, just the other night that a person sent me, and I heard a lot of anger coming out of someone's uh, interpretation of the Bible. It was coming from a very specific direction. Uh, and the person even admitted, I'm looking at the Bible through this particular lens. 
And it made me realize at first I was very angry because I'm like, oh, you're not explaining the word right. You should do it this way. And you're misinterpreting that. And you're misinterpreting that. And it was like God grabbed my heart and stopped me and went, think about how wounded that person is to interpret my word that way. Our best bet is to strengthen ourselves in faith, to strengthen ourselves in love, to strengthen ourselves in grace. Yes, we need to correct in truth at times. But first, have we manifested the love of God enough that that lame person can be, rather than making it worse and making them more disabled, can we heal that area of their life so they're free to see clearly? Make every effort to live in peace. Man, I don't always do this. I was crossing the street the other day and a guy kind of pulled out fast, like almost didn't stop as we're walking with the green man. You know, And I'm kind of looking at him, hey, I, I got the green man, what's your problem? And I realized there, there are different reactions. My reaction was one that could have escalated um, confrontation. I could say, yes, I'm in the right. My family's walking behind me. I don't want you to kill me with your car. I want you to pay attention when you're driving. You know, you're driving something that could kill people. Be careful. And I had all my justifications ready. The truth of the matter is I got scared because somebody's driving at me fast. And then I got angry because I got scared. And had I been wise, I could have de-escalated the situation by simply waving and kind of being humble about it. And I think both of us would have gone on our separate ways, no problem. Praise God, nothing more than just a look happened, but uh, it was a lesson to me. Be careful about how I'm representing Jesus in my life. And that one I missed. Back to holiness. Go to Jesus, get forgiveness on that cross, and then allow him who has perfected me ever, forever to work out my sanctification day in, day out, making me more like him. So what do I do instead? Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, and to be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Here's God's motivation in his heart coming out in these verses. He doesn't want you to be holy so you can go, look how much better I am than everybody else. He wants you to be holy, free from all that impurity, so you can be intimate with him, so you can enjoy his presence, so you can enjoy his friendship. You know, there's movies I watch sometimes that are dumb action macho movies and I've had to pull away from that quite a bit because if I'm watching that movie, chances are Nani's not watching with me. That's my wife. So if I want to see her, I need to do things that would align to something she might be interested in. If I want to see the Lord, I might want to do things he'd be interested in. Not because I'm trying to earn his favor or earn his friendship, but so he and I can enjoy that friendship and intimacy in freedom. That's why he wants us holy. So see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. I like that. It's not even talking about just us. It's all of us. See to it that no one. This is where the collective starts coming in. But this word throws me off, falls short of the grace of God. I really struggled with this because I'm like, the grace of God is God's supernatural power coming to us to enable us to do something we otherwise couldn't do. So what would it mean to fall short of that? It's God's work. It's not my work. And his grace is perfect. How could it be falling short? Uh, and then praise God for BibleHub.com and other great resources online. There's a lot of good stuff. Uh, out there, you know, logos, if you want to spend a little bit of money, uh, uh, there's, there's Bible Hub, which I use mostly because it's free to tell you the truth, but it's really good. Uh, so BibleHub.com looked up, looked up these words. What does this fall short mean? And it explained that it's almost like if you're running a race and you just decide not to run to the end. So you've been given the power, the grace. You've been given the authority in Jesus. You've been given the relationship with Jesus, but you just choose not to keep running. So it's challenge here is this. If you see somebody stopping, if you see somebody giving up, if you see something causing people to quit running, 
Go grab them and help them and go, no, don't fall short of the grace of God. Keep running. There's a victory for you. There's a finish line for you. There's a reward for you. Don't stop. Keep going. And why would they stop? I think he explains it in the very next part of the verse. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. What happens is someone's running well and they get tripped. Oftentimes they get tripped by another believer. The other believer stumbles in their run and you stumble over them and now you're falling. Uh, If you remember the NBA, if you like the NBA in 2016, Draymond Green fell over LeBron James. Unfortunately, he allowed a bitter root to grow up and he punched LeBron James in his private areas. He got a technical foul and he was suspended for the next game, which probably is one of the main reasons uh, that the Warriors were uh, defeated in that championship series because it gave the Cavaliers a chance to come back, LeBron James's team. Here's the point. That guy caused you to stumble but then your response to the stumbling could even be worse. The bitter root could grow up, and now it starts troubling others and defiling many. And as you can tell, I like LeBron more than Draymond Green, so sorry to use you as an example, Draymond. Anyway, uh, the idea here is this. If you see yourself stumbling, which you will, you'll make stumbles. You might be offended by someone else. They might run into your path and slow you down. Uh, They might do something that makes your journey more difficult. Guard against bitterness because bitterness will get you where you justify stopping. So it's saying guard against that. It's one thing to have a mistake. It's another thing to even be offended and even make a mistake based on the other mistake and compound it. But if you let bitterness start getting in, it'll justify quitting. And quitting is the one thing we can never do. So let no one, uh, no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. How do we ultimately overcome this issue of potentially falling short of the grace of God or giving up or letting bitter roots go in? Here's how we do it. We submit ourselves to the reality that we have a debt to one another. Because God has so loved us, we're called to love one another. We have a continuing debt. It goes on the rest of our life. We have one debt. You're supposed to love one another. Jesus has loved you fully. Keep loving one another fully. Why? For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So now it's going to contrast two different ideas, right? Back to Mount Sinai. What does Mount Sinai tell us? It tells us don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet. But what does Mount Zion tell us? All that can be summed up in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. So we can either choose to get a list out and just try to avoid doing all the things we're not supposed to do. Or we could make the difficult choice of allowing God to come into our hearts, deal with our hardness, deal with our bitterness, heal us from the inside out, fill us with his love, that we learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that's the better way and why, because love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Mount Zion, it's not just about obeying or, you know, if you, uh, you're going to get fined if you do this. You're going to get fined if you do that. You're going to find it's actually changing your heart where you don't want to hurt somebody else. And you naturally want to do what is love to someone else. So your motivation becomes pure, which causes your actions to become pure, which causes you to become more like Jesus, which is what holiness is all about. So let me summarize what I've said. We have not come to Mount Sinai. We are not under judgment. That is not a fact. Jesus has set us free from that. That's the part about being perfected forever. We're not under God's judgment. 
We're also not slaves to fear. Why? Because even if you kill us, we just go and live with Jesus forever. That heavenly Jerusalem we're seeing by faith right now, we experience in fullness on the other side of eternity. Now it says this, we are not separated from God. So if you remember Mount Sinai, it's a cloud to protect us from God's pureness. Now he's welcoming us into his pureness because covered in the blood of Jesus, uh, his sacrifice healing us and forgiving us has made us no longer guilty, no longer sinful. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus so we can also stand in the very presence of God. We've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. In Mount Zion, we are encountering the, God's presence in love. It says it's his place of his dwelling. We're enjoying his protection as king. That's a place where he rules and reigns. When God is in charge, everything's working correctly. We're also executing his purposes for our lives. Remember it said that David became king there. God's calling, God's anointings, God's positioning happens from Mount Zion. His spiritual eyes touch you. His spiritual leadership touches you and leads you to the place you're supposed to be in life. Finally, it says this, we live out his holiness. How? By looking to Jesus. When I get lost, go back to Jesus. We used to do the what would Jesus do bracelets. Maybe it's time to bring them back. What would Jesus do? That's what I should do. Or what did Jesus do? And how can that inform my actions for today? We live out his holiness by receiving his discipline. That's the part I don't love. Talked about walking across the street, guy pulls up fast in his car, thought he might hit us. I react with anger. I can tell my wife's kind of looking at me like, don't do that. My daughter's getting nervous. I didn't produce love in them. So what happens? God, I'm wrestling through, like I said, all my justifications for my actions. God is speaking to my heart going, you produce fear in your family, which is not healthy. You didn't love that person and you didn't create an atmosphere of peace. You weren't trying to be a peacemaker and the peacemakers are the ones who see God. You were trying to escalate and therefore I was off and therefore I need to repent and turn back to God and walk in his holiness, which he can forgive me and now he empowers me to live differently. Finally, how do I live out God's holiness? By living in love. The only way I'm going to do that is by living in the presence of God. So we've talked a lot today about holiness and living it out. And I think one great place to start and why we always bring it up is taking the bread, taking the cup, receiving communion. And you can do this in your own time. If you do it as a family, really encourage you to do it as a family. Rem remembering Jesus' body broken that our bodies could be made whole. Jesus' physical body broken that his spiritual body, the body of Christ, could forgive one another and live in healing and health in our relationships. The cup, which represented Jesus' blood, shed for us. Why is that important? Because my sins are real. My mistakes are real. But the payment was also real. Jesus has forgiven us so we can start over. We can start new. And by his grace, we can keep running this race, not falling short, receiving grace every single day, every minute, every hour, every second, every breath, that we might walk in his grace into his purposes for all eternity. So God bless you as you seek the Lord this week. Thank you for listening to the Every Nation Singapore podcast. We hope you've been blessed by today's message. For more information, visit everynation.org.sg.